And our New Testament reading is from John 5, verses 1 to 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, or Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and then that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Scott. Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to speak to you this afternoon from God's word. Uh, why don't I pray before we start? Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear you speak to us this evening, that you would be at work in us, helping us to hear your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In his essay, Reflections on the Tedium of Immortality, the philosopher Bernard Williams details the fictional account of Elena Macropolis, a lady on whom her father, the court physician to a 16th century emperor, tried out an elixir of life. Currently, she's 342. Her unending life has come to a state of boredom, indifference and coldness. Everything is joyless. In the end, it's the same, she says. Singing and silence. She refuses to take the elixir again. She dies, and the formula is deliberately destroyed by a young woman among the protests of some older men. Surely the key to, to true happiness is to find a way to, to live forever. Maybe that's too, too fictional, too, too ambitious. Maybe the key is in the, in the promise of 
significance in the jobs we do or, or satisfaction in family and the friends we have. Or maybe it's just in a sense of being physically well, a clean bill of health. What do we look for in this world? Or as Ecclesiastes puts it, what do we look for in a life under the sun to bring us meaning? What are the things we do in order to shape our lives in ways that truly satisfy and bring joy and happiness? More importantly, where do we look? We can look to family, to our finance, to our physical health. In the case of Elena Macropolis, we can look to immortality. But where do these things lead? Even the ability to hold immortality in the palm of our hands would be meaningless, suggests Bernard Williams. I guess he's right in a way. A never-ending life would be meaningless in a cursed and broken world. Who would want to live in the endless cycles of the horrors the world has to offer? Surely one holocaust is enough. Seeing generations after generations repeat the same old follies. And yet we see throughout John's gospel the promise of eternal life. A life that will not only have its fullest meaning in the new creation, but a life that can start to have meaning and fullness now. A life that is filled with hope when we look to the Son of God, whose words have power to save us, in whose words there is life. In this passage, we see the healing of a man and his interaction with Jesus. We see a man looking to the things of this world to make him whole, to make him well. This is the third miracle, or third sign, as John commonly refers to them in his gospel. As we know, signs point to something beyond themselves. And hopefully this this evening we'll unpack what this sign is telling us about Jesus. To guide us through this passage, we're going to use three headings. Firstly, we'll see the Son of God who seeks us out in a broken world. Secondly, we'll see that the words of the Son of God have the power to save us. And thirdly, we'll see that the Son of God saves us so that we can have new life. So firstly, look to the Son of God who seeks us out. The Son of God seeks us out in a world of despair. The world is broken. We see in the first few verses that it is Jesus who initiates this interaction. We read in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? This scene is a picture of utter desperation, despair and dejection. A place where the disabled and decrepit go with their ailing bodies to to catch a healing. They hope to get lucky and enter this stirred up water which might cure them. I guess this scene is far removed from the lives we live in the cosy city of Cambridge. It, It would be ludicrous to think that a group of people would congregate around Jesus Green. People who were blind, paralyzed, disabled, lame, with all sorts of infirmities, waiting to get into the river cam on certain occasions because they thought it might make them better. What would you think of it? You'd think it's absurd. Yet this scene gives us a snapshot of the very worlds we live in, even in Cambridge. 
The American essayist and philosopher Henry Thoreau once wrote, all men lead quiet lives of desperation. Isn't that the case? That in a cursed and sinful world, desperate people do desperate things. Just like this man returning to this pool year after year for 38 years. Or like the Samaritan woman looking to marriage after marriage to satisfy her. What do we look to? What do we return to day after day, year after year, decade after decade in search for fulfillment, satisfaction, in order to be made whole? You see, looking to the things of this world for satisfaction and wholeness is, is like trying to fill a jar with a hole in the bottom or like trying to patch a breach in a dam with a blanket. Our efforts are washed away into the seeming oblivion of life in a broken and cursed world. Like a broken record offering nothing but the same line over and over again. Yet the Son of God steps into our world and says, look no further, I have found you. We see in this passage that it is Jesus who seeks this man out. If there's a a temptation to think that it's us who initiates this relationship, please think again. The story of the Bible is a story of a God who constantly reaches out to his people and provides for us. A people who constantly turn their backs on him. The climax of God seeking us out can be summed up by by one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. The son of God whose words have the power to save, to give life. The son of God who is the word and was with God in the beginning. The creator who steps into his creation and breathes new life into it. You see, our salvation is never based on what we've done or what we can or cannot do. Our salvation always starts with a loving God who reaches out to us by sending his only begotten son to find us, to seek us out. I wonder how the son of God might be seeking us out today in our brokenness, in our broken bodies, in our desperations, in the things we long for, in the things we put our hope in. He seeks us out because he's a good shepherd and we are lost sheep. And in this passage, we see this good shepherd entering to care for his sheep. In this passage, we see Jesus seeking out a man in order to heal him. Which leads to our second point. Not only does the Son of God seek us out, but his words have the power to save His words are powerful. See, this sign tells us about the power of the words of the Son of God. His his words have the power to bring life. If it's tempting to think that, oh, the healing of the official son in the previous passage, you know, is is a bit of a fluke, a bit of a coincidence, this passage compels us to think again. We see Jesus at the heart of the scene where the healing takes place. We read in verse 8, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. This is the third sign in the book of John. And I guess it's easy to become accustomed to the miracles or the signs that Jesus performs. And we tend not to, to marvel at them. As Christians, we can become desensitized to the miracles and wonders of Jesus. 
there's a, a temptation to stop marveling, to stop caring about what they tell us about the Son of God. Well, John doesn't want us to forget. He keeps on giving us clues and signs. So far in John's Gospel, Jesus has turned water into wine. He shows supernatural insights by telling a Samaritan woman the most intimate details of her personal life. And at the end of chapter 4, Jesus heals the royal official's son by simply speaking. And now again, by simply speaking, Jesus heals this man. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. A man who would have been living a, a pitiful and pathetic existence. His muscles would have atrophied, stopped working due to decades of not being used. His body would have been useless, all but dead. And here we read that Jesus speaks and this man's body receives life. Now, there are a couple of layers to this healing. On the one level, we see Jesus wandering around at a Jewish festival in Jerusalem. He goes to the pool at Bethesda, has a chat with a man, and then heals him. But if you notice in this passage, Jesus only heals this one man. In a place where there is a multitude of people who need healing, Jesus only heals this one man. In a way, we can view this as a, as a snapshot of the new creation. You see, where Jesus goes, the new creation breaks through. Life breaks through. There will come a time when we all will be fully restored, a time where the tyranny of sin and death will no longer reign over our perfectly restored bodies. This miracle is pointing to that time, a time of perfect restoration for all who would believe in his life-giving words. As we read in verse 24, which is further on, and not in our reading um, this evening, it says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. You see, the words of Jesus are a matter of life and death. Hear and believe in these words, and you shall cross over from death to life. Not only do the words of Jesus have the power to command creation, we see this all throughout the Gospels. His words have the power to give us life. We see this dramatically later on in chapter 11 as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so we read it here again in verse 24. I wonder how the saving words of Jesus speaks into our lives today. How does it shape the way we live? In the moments when we feel downcast, do we look to the life-giving words of Jesus? As the psalmist tells us, do we put our hopes in the Savior? The things of this world have no answer. However, we can look to the powerful saving words of the Son of God that give us hope, that give us eternal life. Which brings us onto our third and final heading. The Son saves us so that we can have new life. When the Son of God saves us, life changes. Think of a, a lock in its key, or a bow and arrow, or a bridegroom and his bride. These things go together. They go hand in hand. So it is that when the Son of God saves us, we should expect our lives to change. These two things go hand in hand. They go together. You've probably heard countless stories of 
lottery winners. They have a photo with a, a glass of champagne and a massive cardboard check in the paper, grinning, smiling. Why are they so happy? Well, they're happy because life has changed. They can now live the life they've always looked forward to living. It would be odd if someone won the lottery and instead of cashing in the check, they took it and just stuffed it in a cupboard. Life doesn't change. You get the point, don't you? When something exciting like that happens to you, life changes. When the Son of God saves our lives, saves us, our lives change. Just like a lock and its key goes together. When we receive the gift of eternal life, our lives change now. But it won't be easy. The world is hostile to God's people, to those he has saved. Notice the opposition to the man's healing in verses 10 to 13. Instead of rejoicing and marveling in the miraculous healing of a man who had been living a subhuman existence for 38 years, they ignore it and focus on the laws and customs. A man that has all but received life isn't enough to convince them. Isn't that the case? that we live in a world hostile to the gospel. We see it in John chapter 1, verse 10 to 11. It says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The world is hostile to the sun because the sun is the light that exposes the sins of the world. A sinful world rejecting the sinless saviour. And so in verse 14, we see Jesus seek this man out again for the second time and says to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What's going on here? You see, on the one level, we see a healing taking place. And yet, this penultimate verse reveals the real significance of this passage. Jesus has healed this man in order that he might stop sinning that he might have new life. I have saved you. Now live as though you have died to sin and have been raised to new life. Or else. We're not quite sure what this man's sin was. The passage doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us about the Son of God is that he saves us while we were yet sinners. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the Son of God seeks us out and saves us. On the cross, he died a death he did not deserve and justified us by his blood, reconciling us to God. Because as sinners, we were God's enemies. God's enemies who have now been saved from God's wrath through the death of his Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Cross. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The something worse in verse 14 is, is most likely refer, referring to the final judgment, a time when the sun will come again to judge both the living and the dead. This man's life has been a misery for 38 years. How can it get any worse? And yet Jesus says to him, I have saved you from your life of misery so that you may be well, so that you may be reconciled to God and be saved from his wrath. A wrath which will be worse than anything you've ever known. The Son of God has come to save us from God's wrath. It's a gift. 
as Christians, we're to live in light of this gift, the gift of eternal life. We are to to live as though we are no longer God's enemies. Live as those who have received the gift, the greatest gift of all. Don't hide it in a cupboard. I guess don't, don't play the lottery either, but as Christians, we, we don't live by luck, you see, wondering whether it will ever be our turn to, to cash in. You know, we, we know the things of this world cannot satisfy our eternal longings. It, it's like chasing after the wind. Isn't it the case that the many stories we hear of people winning the lottery often ends in misery? I thought that life would get better with all this money. Now I'm just worse off. Breakthroughs in medicine to help us live longer, to a riper old age. Yet we see more ways to end life before they've even started. Look not to the things of this world, which take as much as it gives. Look to the Son of God, who seeks us out and gives us the gift of eternal life, whose words have the power to save us. The Son of God, who gives us the hope of a perfect life in the new creation, which gives our lives meaning now, doesn't it? No longer do we have to spend 38 years or, or 342 years, many lifetimes, searching for things to make us whole, to make us well. They're good things, don't get me wrong, good health is a good thing, but they can't satisfy us. Look no further. Look to the Son of God who has found us and has saved us. Saved us from God's wrath. Saved us to live with him in the glorious eternity that awaits us. You see, that's what John's gospel is about, isn't it? This sign, this healing of the man has been recorded that we might believe in the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It is written so that we see the Son of God has God's authority to give life. His words are powerful and life-giving. For those who might not call themselves Christians, let me just say, this offers for you as well. These signs have been recorded that you might believe and look only to the Son of God whose words have the power to save. Look no longer to the things of this world which cannot satisfy. You look to the Son of God who offers to save you and me. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you need to do to earn it. It's the gift of God if you would just believe. For those of you that are Christians who have heard and believe in this word, in the words of the Son of God, let me encourage you to keep looking to him and to his words, not just this afternoon, but as you leave here, as you live your lives, let, let's continue to seek God's help and ask him to show us the things that, often turn, that we often turn to instead of looking to his Son. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to continue his work in us as we live as God's people knowing that one day we'll see his face. Life has changed since you've been reconciled to God. Life has changed because we stop putting our hopes in the things of this world. Rather, we put our hopes in the Son of God. Look to the Son of God who asks for nothing, but rather he offers eternal life, if we only would just believe in his name. going to respond to that now by singing our second hymn.
for all the saints who from their 